kind of timely. I hadn't really thought about this at the beginning, that it worked out really well for Mark and his family to give him a week off and uh, gives me a chance to share God's word again. Uh, unfortunately, today's reading is so good, I could be here for days and preach about this. And I suppose that would make Mark happy, because he doesn't often get to sit and soak for a while, although maybe it won't be much of a spray today, just a few drips and drops here or there. Uh, but we're going to talk about Simeon's song today, and if you have your Bible, I'm going to come back to these texts every once in a while, if you want to kind of keep track of where I'm at. But I'm going to start with this question. If Jesus were to be born today... Would it be any different than it was 2,000 plus years ago? Now, we'd like to think that the answer is yes, that we would not turn him away. We would either find him a room, rent him a room, or throw one of our kids out of their room. But they were, he was, they were not going to let him go without a place to stay. We think we would probably do a better job finding a place for Jesus at Christmas time. Particularly if I, it's true what I've heard, that there are more hotel rooms in Branson than in St. Louis or Kansas City. We would find him a place in Branson or possibly Hollister, <laughs> across from my coffee shop. But the question is, is that the truth? Are we more prepared for the coming of Jesus and what Jesus means to us than they were in Bethlehem? I think that's really a crucial question. We need to ask that question. It seems to me that when you read the Bible, most people back then were not the least bit prepared. I mean, Herod certainly wasn't. He was not expecting to be knocked off his throne by another king. Um, even the, and, and the scribes, even though they had scriptures that said Jesus was going to be born in these places, they knew that they didn't really seem to care much about it. Uh, the rich and powerful in Bethlehem, if there were such things in that little tiny town of Bethlehem, they didn't seem to pay much attention to whether this little child was going to be born either. Uh, the rulers of the world didn't care that he was born. Uh, by the standards of his birth, Jesus' birth was kind of a little, a little blip on the radar screen. Uh, in Rome, Athens, Alexandria, the big cities of that day, nobody bothered to Think about this. If you lived in the countries of China or India, the birth of Jesus meant nothing to them. In fact, it kind of reminds me of that Christmas song that we sing written by Philip Brooks where he says, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Jesus kind of slipped in under the radar. It was as John chapter 1 says too. He was in the world and although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now when I read a text like that, I ask myself, who are his own? And who is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about his world, his world that he created. Go back and read Genesis 1. He was there because John 1 says so. He was creating. His own people, the Jews, weren't even ready, it seemed. His own nation, Israel, who had been longing for a Messiah, they weren't even ready. The very people who should have been happiest and most excited to see him, it was just another day in history. And see, while it's true that the nation was not ready, there were a lot of other people who apparently were. The wise men, the magi who traveled from a place we might call Persia, they had an inkling that something was going because they saw not that big full moon, 
I tell you, it was really big in Texas last week, but everything's bigger in Texas. Um, they knew enough about it. The shepherds were excited enough about it, uh, but they represent a bunch of Gentiles, of all things, who were excited to hear about the coming of Jesus. And even in Israel, there were those who believed that the days were getting closer and closer. When I studied this text, I discovered that there was a little-known group. Maybe Mark knows all about this. He'll teach about this sometime. Uh, they were called Quiet in the Land. you ever hear of them? A group called Quiet in the Land, a bunch of people who could care less about rioting or overthrowing the Roman government. They just wanted to sit around and wait for the Messiah to come. Now, this is where we kind of pick up the story one more time. In Luke, it says, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, when I look at this, there are three different aspects of Old Testament law that we're talking about here. Mark alluded to this before. A young male child was required to be circumcised on the eighth day after, after his birth. The law also required that women had to wait 40 days before they could actually go into the temple again to go through their rites of purification. The law also required that the mother and father present their firstborn son to literally be redeemed. And I find that interesting because here they're coming and they're redeeming Jesus. And Jesus, if he could speak already at that age, goes, I'm here to redeem you. <laughs> you just don't know it yet. You just don't know it yet. And all three things are happening in these few verses. I mean, verse 21 of your text, right after Christmas, 22 and 23, 40 days later. Now, the circumcision could have taken place in Bethlehem. Could have. But these other two things had to take place. If you want to go back, you, instead of watching Kansas City play today, um, I don't know, did my Cowboys play today? Good. Okay, we watch them instead. <laughs> but if you want to do something else, go back and read Leviticus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 13. And you can read all about those rites of purification and read all about that, that redemptive service. And these verses really kind of illustrate another passage in Scripture. Galatians chapter 4, 4, that said, When the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born what? Some of you know how that ends. Under the law. See, it also illustrates what Jesus said in Matthew 5, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. So if you think about the life of Jesus, what's happening here? Jesus was no lawbreaker. As some people would suggest a little bit later, he was born under the law, lived his whole life in obedience to the law, and he kept every law to the very end. Now, verse 23, also in the text, tells us a little bit more about Mary and Joseph. And in fact, when you hear the story, sometimes you kind of skip right over that little part where it says, two doves or two pigeons. Now, I always think about this every time I read this story because my grandpa was the janitor of the church, the school, and the parish hall in Seward, Nebraska. That's a great place to be from. Go Big Red, by the way. 
Um, we used to have pigeons all over the church. And you know, those are kind of nasty things on a Sunday morning. So my grandpa used to soak corn and whiskey, and we scattered it out on the road. And when the pigeons got drunk, we'd pick them up and carry them across the street, and some guy ate them. Now, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that's got to do with the sermon, but, but, but they're kind of cheap little birds. Now, all of this, by doing this, having these pigeons or these doves allowed a, a woman who, or a family that was not very wealthy to come in and go through those rites. And all of this kind of confirms for us that Mary and Joseph were poor since... Lambs, and we got some people who have some lambs and some sheep, because I did their wedding and her, all the way through the wedding. Lambs were not even considered a luxury item. So what we know about this couple is they were not born into an upper class family. They were, Jesus was not born into a middle class family. Uh, Jesus came from what would, we would call a lower middle class. He knew poverty and he knew hardship. Right from the very beginning. So now, 40 days have passed. And here they are in Jerusalem. They come into the temple. They're ready to redeem their firstborn son. And there's nothing about them that would suggest that they are anything other than a couple of poor people with a little itty-bitty baby. And it's at this time we would say, enter stage right, Simeon. And aside from what we're told in Luke chapter 2, we know absolutely nothing else about this guy. We don't know his background. We don't know his hometown. We don't know his education. A lot of people have always said, well, maybe he was a priest because he's hanging around in the temple all the time. A lot of people suggest he was probably an old man. But what we know is he suddenly appears on the stage, and once he's done his stuff, he disappears, never to be heard from again. Do you ever hear that term, divine appointment? You're there just at the right time. Jeff, you'll appreciate this. I happened to go to a coffee shop you're familiar with in Hollister the other day. But a little bit later, I got home and I told my wife I was a little bit delayed because suddenly there was somebody there who needed to talk about Jesus. Divine appointment. I didn't have that on my day timer, didn't plan it out, just happened to be there, a divine appointment. So here's the divine appointment. Luke tells it this way. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die, underline that, not die, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, this tells us a lot about Simeon. Tells us that he was a righteous man. Now, righteousness is kind of like right living, right thinking, right doing. He was very devout. In other words, he was rather meticulous in how he carried out his duties. He was waiting for the Messiah. That's what waiting for this consolation really means here. We know he's spirit-filled. But most importantly, he was eagerly awaiting this imminent arrival of the Lord's Messiah. And why? It's because the Holy Spirit told him. I find that really interesting. When's the last time, Mark, the Holy Spirit contacted you? Mark, are you listening? Are you listening? He's doing it right He's now. He's doing it right now. Good. Good. I was afraid I was dying up here. <laughs> no. 
He was listening for the Holy Spirit. And the whole, because the Holy Spirit said, you will not die before you see what? The Messiah. Now, what a promise. Now, if this guy was old, as we suspect he is, you go read a little further in the text. Verse 29 suggests that he was kind of old. He's been waiting in the temple for who knows how many years. Day by day, he's praying that this will be the day he sees the Messiah. And as he gets older, that anticipation doesn't go away. It gets stronger every time he's in this temple. So picture a guy now, really old, like me, you know, somewhere in his, I'm not in my 80s yet. That'll be a few years. (laughs) But he knows it can't be long. He knows it. Now, I want you to picture it. Can you imagine going to the temple and the temple was not the size of praise and worship? Temple was one humongous place and there are people coming in every day. So picture this old man in the temple every day waiting for somebody to come in. Hopefully it's the Lord's Christ. People coming in and each time a couple is there, he's he's going, uh, Lord, is this the one? Is this is this the one? And every time he saw a, a, maybe a teenage boy walk in. Is this the one? Is this the one? And, and every time the voice came back, no. No, not yet. Simeon, hang in there, buddy. Hang in there. Keep on looking. Keep on waiting. He's going to come. But now, guess what? Into the temple walks Mary and Joseph carrying this little 40, 41-day-old baby. I mean, nobody was a more unlikely couple. Here's a poor carpenter from Nazareth, maybe his little 14 or 15-year-old wife carrying this little baby. They're obviously country folk. I guess we'd call them hillbillies, but I understand we're supposed to call them Ozark Americans, (laughs) to be politically correct. Some of you are laughing because you are one. They are without much money. They are probably not educated. They are not the upper crust of the society. And when Simeon sees them, he asks for maybe the 10,000th or more time, is this the one? And he hears, yeah, this is the one. He's here. Oh, man. Can you imagine Simeon? I don't know if an 80-year-old man leaps. Anybody here 80? You try it after a while. Let's see whether you do it or not. But the long days are finally over. Finally over. Here's the one he's been waiting for. And I I picture him walking up and saying, you don't know me, uh, but I'm Simeon. Can I hold your baby for a moment? And Joseph and Mary probably looked at each other and like, who is this old geezer? But they gave him the baby. Can you even begin to imagine how he would have felt? He had this baby and he says, I'm holding the salvation of the world in my hands. I bet he cried. I think I'd have cried. I cried when I held my grandson one of the first times. I almost cried at your wedding, Octavia. Happens, happens. And then he breaks into a song. 
And this song is, is really cool. We're going to sing it after a while. It's come down. Really, you know, I had some people this last week. What are the oldest Christmas carols? Where did they come from? Colonial America, Europe. You know, the four oldest ones come from Matthew and Luke. We're going to sing one of them this morning. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. It's taken from the first two Latin words when they translated the Bible, the Vulgate, the Catholic version. But what follows is a song of praise, but then a word of prophetic blessing to Mary. We're going to take a look at this real quick. It says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. I love that. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, Simeon's first law was, Lord, my duty's done. I'm ready to be dismissed. Now, that, that word dismiss in the Greek is a military term. It, it kind of means that you've stood sentry duty all night long. And now as the sun is coming up over the hills, you're waiting for the commanding officer to say, you're done. You can now leave. That's the way Simeon feels here. The long wait of how many years is done His sentry duty is finished, for he has seen and he has personally held the Lord's Christ. Now, sometimes we hear stories, and we shared kind of a little story yesterday with Jeff's father and mother and and his wife about someone who passed away the other day. And sometimes we hear these stories about people who they just want to make it to Christmas. Or they're just waiting until their granddaughter or grandson gets married. And they make it to that point. But the next day or the next moment, they're gone home to be with Jesus. Their goal has been reached. Life is complete. Death comes quickly. And I think that's exactly how Simeon feels at this moment. He's not going to live to see or witness anything that Jesus ever does. I mean, he's not going to see Jesus walk on the water. He won't see Jesus feed 5,000 or 3,000. He, he won't see uh, Jesus uh, raise anybody from the dead. He won't see Jesus standing in front of Pilate. He won't see Jesus crucified on that cross. But it doesn't matter that he won't see the end. Because why? Simeon has seen the very beginning. He's seen the very beginning. But notice what he says about Jesus. In verse 32, he says, Simeon says, he's the glory of Israel. It's the glory of Israel. Just one little phrase, he's saying, this is the fulfillment of all the hopes and the dreams of the past couple of thousand years. And when he calls him the glory of Israel, he takes us back to the days when God told Abraham, guess what? I'm going to make you a great nation. Lots of people. I'm going to give you a land. But more importantly, I'm going to use you to pour out a couple blessing upon the nations. And Abraham probably wondered what's going to happen then too. But then it happened again with Isaac and Jacob. And still later, God came to Moses and said, there's going to be a prophet even greater that's going to come someday. And still later, he promised King David that there's going to be a king who sits on the throne forever and ever. And then still later, he comes to Isaiah and he says, guess what? Uh, There's going to be a virgin who's going to actually have a baby and you're going to call him Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. And still later he comes to Micah and Micah says, and he's, by the way, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so for generation after generation after generation, this story is told and retold and retold from father to son to mother to daughter, family to family. Even young little Jewish kids were taught to pray constantly. Like, come, Lord Jesus, come, come. And by the time that Jesus was born, I think one question was resonating with people more than anything else. And that is, what is taking you so long? What's taking you so long? You ever do that? You, got, you expect people at your house for Christmas? Where are they at? Where are they at? Maybe they're not coming. Maybe we forgot to invite them. Maybe we didn't pray in them. You know, but where are they? Where are they? But he's coming after all of these years. The promises are coming true. That's why Simeon said, Jesus is the glory of Israel. Or like another Christmas carol we sing, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Right there. He also says he's the savior of the world. I love this. I'm I'm a missionary at heart. I love going places and sharing the good news of Jesus with people that aren't Lutheran. (laughs) Well, they're otherworldly sometimes. I'll be back teaching in Angola prison at the end of January, and I'll come back and share some stuff with you when I come back. But Simeon calls him a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now, you don't find that in the other three Christmas songs that are mentioned in Matthew and Luke. I mean, Mary, the Magnificat, is completely Jewish. Gentiles, obviously, were not on her mind. The same is true of Zechariah. Remember Zechariah when he sang his song about his son, John the Baptist. Now, the angels kind of allude to that when they they sing this Gloria, peace on earth, goodwill to man. But none of the first three mention Gentiles at all. But Simeon explicitly says, this baby will not only be the glory of his people, Israel. He'll be the light of revelation to all the Gentiles. And all you Gentiles ought to be happy as a clam at high tide. We are all Gentiles. He's going to be a light of revelation to every nation, tribe, kindred, every language. I don't know if you know how many languages there are in the, in the world. There, there's tons of them. And the Bible isn't anywhere close to being revealed to them. Still don't have it in their word. See, the Jews could no longer say, he only belongs to us and not to you. The Jews couldn't say, oh, you have to be a Jew in order to belong. It's kind of like saying, oh, you want to be saved? You need to take Pastor Mark's class. And after taking the class, you have to sign something. And then we'll give you the right hand of fellowship and the left hand of envelopes. And then, and then, and only then, can you actually be part of the group. No, all of this is gone. All of this is gone. Now, no doubt, some of the Jews were bothered by this. But Simeon's words kind of explode across what we might call nationalism. He's the savior of the entire world world. Rich, poor, old, young, Jew, Gentile, American, Indian, Japanese, Chinese, you name it, healthy or handicapped. He's the savior of everybody. He came for the whole world. I almost wore a tie today that had little footprints all over it. It says red and yellow, black and white, 
They are precious in his sight. He just came for y'all. Now, that, that, that means there's hope for you and me at Christmas. I, I love that. There's hope. There's hope. I mean, if you're lonely, if you've been lonely during this Christmas season, Simeon meant to include you in those words. If your family has somehow rejected you or shoved you to the side, Simeon means to include you. If you feel forgotten or depressed or discouraged or down on your luck, be of good cheer. That's what this scripture is telling us this morning. I mean, Christmas means that even the sins that have been nagging at you this last year can be forgiven because Jesus, the Savior, came to die for you. If it's true that Jesus was a Jew, but he came for everybody. Think about it. He met that Samaritan woman at the well who had been married multiple times and was shacked up with somebody else. And what did he do? He forgave her. He met a Roman centurion and after dealing with him, he said, I've never found greater faith in all of Israel. He met a Syrophoenician woman and healed her daughter. And when he was crucified... A centurion stood under the cross and said, surely this man was the son of God. Simeon is telling us that God, by sending his son into the world, is not only fulfilling his promise to the nations, he's also bringing the world a savior that they need. But there's a last part to this text. He's the divider of the human race. The divider of the human race. The story continues here. It says, the child's father and mother marveled at what he said about him. No kidding. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary. Now, I want you to picture this. I want you to picture those of you that have given birth to a child, holding your firstborn in your arms and having somebody come up and say this to you. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul. Have a nice day. <laughs> I hope he caught that Jesus is the divider of people. He's going to cause many to fall. He's going to cause many to rise. And many will speak against him. And in speaking against him, they're going to show who they really are. But, you know, think about this. What a thing to say about a tiny little baby. Mary, I know you're happy now, but you're going to cry like a baby later. Oh, come on, Mary. Your heart's really filled with joy today. But someday it's going to be a lot of sorrow. I mean, rejoice and be happy. Enjoy the time now because some really dark days are coming. Wow. See, see me and say, Mary, they're going to touch your child And you won't be able to do anything about it. They're going to hate him. They're going to lie about him. They're going to spread rumors about you and your marriage or whatever happened in your marriage. Uh, They're going to smear his name with malicious lies. And you will have to stand by helplessly. And you're going to have to watch every last thing that happens. Now, we know down the road, because we've read the rest of the story... Eventually, they question not only his parentage, they actually question his mental ability. 
Some of them said, oh, he goes around and calls himself the Son of God. The guy's nuts. He's full of devils. And in the end, what happens? Hatred takes control. And they arrest Jesus. They put him on trial. They try him as a seditious blasphemer. They beat him within an inch of his life. They, they leave his skin in, in tattered ribbons. And after the trial, they condemn him to die. And in the end, what happens? You know the story. Mary is standing there at the cross. And she watches her own son die this agonizing, brutal, bloody, inhuman death on the cross. And she stands there. She's not able to do anything. She can't stop the flow of blood. She can't wipe his brow. She can't go up there and hold his hand or do anything. It all happens just the way Simeon predicted. And when Mary watched her son die, it was as if a sword pierced her very soul. See, above the cradle stands a cross. This little baby was literally born to die. I think it's really proper that we have Christmas follow Advent. A lot of people don't like Advent. Kind of a miserable mournful. How often do we have to sing, Oh, come, oh, come, come. Just come and let's get it over with. But, but I think it's proper that Christmas should follow Advent. For him who looks toward the future, the manger is situated on Golgotha, and the cross has already been raised in Bethlehem. The joy of Christmas really leads to the agony of Good Friday. Jesus was born to end up that way. I don't know if you notice how Simeon put it. He said, because of Jesus, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You ought to underline that in your text. Underline that in your mind. The thoughts of many are going to be revealed. Because without Jesus, there is no neutrality. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. I mean, no one can ever come face to face with Jesus and not be the same. You're going to go one way or you're going to go the other way. See, every time you see Jesus, you're either drawn closer to him or you end up pushing him aside. That's what Simeon means when he said Jesus will cause the rising of some and the falling of others. You either go higher when you meet Jesus spiritually or you kind of turn around and you go the other way. It's kind of up or down, heaven or hell. See, in this world, there are only those who believe in Jesus and those people who don't believe in Jesus. I talk to a lot of people who say, well, Jesus, well, we know he was a good teacher. He's a good guy, good person. Said some pretty nice stuff, great moral example. Simeon's saying, you just can't do that with Jesus. Either he is the Son of God, either he is the Lord's Christ from heaven, or he's not. He's not. So at Christmas time, and what a way to end the year. I'm going to tell you, you're really left with two decisions at the end of this year, friends, regarding Jesus. Either you jo- join Herod in trying to kill him, or you join the wise men and the shepherds and bow down and you worship him. And there's nothing in between. The Bible even says that, I wish you were hot or cold because you're kind of, you're gone. Spit you out of my mouth. So let me ask this question. What, what is Jesus to you today. What is Jesus to you today? He's life or death. He's heaven or hell. He's joy or sorrow. He's guilt or forgiveness. He's salvation or he's condemnation. 
He's everlasting life or he's everlasting punishment. So let me ask again, what is Jesus to you? Not who is he? Not who is he. I'm not asking who he is. But what is he? What is he to you? Is he life or is he death to you today? That's what Simeon is saying here at the end of this text. See, this little baby who's the glory of Israel, who's the light of the world, is also the great divider of humanity. Separate. You know, just think about it. The way that you respond to Jesus tells us a lot about who you are, what's in your heart, and it also tells us where you are going in life. Even Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And Simeon saw that from the very beginning. Now, there's a big but at the end of this story, really. It comes at the very end of your life. Simeon says, I have seen the Lord's Christ. It doesn't make much difference about what the rest of your life's like once you've seen Jesus. You could have had a perfectly miserable 70, 80 years. But if you've seen Jesus, that's a great life. All that matters is to know Jesus. So at Christmas, friends, do you know him? Pray you do. He's the Messiah of, the, of Israel. Do you know him? He's the Savior of the world. Do you know him? He's the great divider of mankind. Do you know him? See, it's Christmas. He came for you. The question is, do you know him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you didn't do what you could have done. You didn't leave us alone in our sins. You, you, you could have forgotten us. You could have written us off as hopeless. But you didn't leave us alone. You came for us. And you found us. You sent Jesus to rescue us. Thank you for coming for us that we might be safe now and saved forever. In this life and in the life to come. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The good news is that we get to say together the answer to that question. What is Jesus to us? Since the time of Simeon, or there shortly thereafter, Christians get together and they were like, we need to answer this question.